0: Joe Highland was a record-setting track runner and football player before moving on to collegiate and later professional football in Europe. After his football career ended, he became an assistant football coach at Eastern Michigan University until a recommitment to his Catholic faith set him on a journey to the Ave Maria Foundation as an assistant to Tom Monaghan, then the seminary, and later to Franciscan University. While at Franciscan University, he founded Mission Manhood, a small group forum for Catholic men emphasizing true Christian fraternity before completing his degree in Christian counseling. After completing his master's, Joe spent five years diagnosing and treating severe clinical disorders as the clinical director of a residential treatment facility for at-risk adolescents, until moving to Greenville to start the football program at St. Joseph's Catholic School. Joe has an unwavering desire to transmit the faith a heart for the men of God, and the unique ability to use real-life examples in an honest and easily understood manner. His sincere, passionate, and challenging approach to public speaking has motivated audiences across the country. Joe is married to Andrea Highland, and they are the proud parents of seven young children. Joe was born and raised in suburban Chicago as one of seven children. Joe has a Bachelor of Science degree in history from Milliken University, and a Master's Degree in Christian Counseling from Franciscan University of Steubenville, as well as Philosophy and Theology Studies from Mount St. Mary's Seminary. Joe is also a Licensed Counselor in South Carolina.
1: The problem that we're looking at tonight, this refusal to grow up, I don't, for a minute, to believe it to be accidental. Instead, it's, a, it's the, the natural consequence um, a logical progression, if you will, of factors that have combined to create a unique um, situation that's significant enough to bring us here tonight out of interest and, for some of us, concern. That's warranted, and I hope by the end of this that you'll realize um, and be convinced of that fact. The measurable rise of adolescent behavior, so inappropriate, troublesome, so antithetical to healthy marriage and family life, not surprisingly parallels the decline of influence in the church, while at the same time, unfortunately, the propaganda of the culture in all of its forms saturates and very powerfully increases its influence upon multitudes of people, which further deepen and perpetuate this existing problem. For example, we live in an environment which has become proficient, proficient, informing people in the habit of getting whatever they want, whenever they want. Drive-through, order out text, Twitter, satellite dish, while we increasingly less, if ever, talk about virtue or the necessity to exercise our wills. Daily, we're indoctrinated that it's all about you, from fantasy football to pickup trucks to tattoos. It's increasingly about what makes you happy. What do you want? And this, in truth, it flies in the face of what we inherently know and what we've always been taught as Catholics, to give our life away, to pour ourselves out, to die to self, To lay our life down for one another. This, in my opinion, creates a tension within men. Women, too, but primarily I'm speaking to men tonight. And this, over time, I believe, leads even the best of men. Men who by now have had their will, their intellect, their desire, gradually whittled away from a daily onslaught of unhealthy messages and images, It leads men to a place whereby they're little more than sitting ducks in really what amounts to be a raging war for their souls, the souls of their wives and their children and their families. They don't stand a chance, and this is not to exonerate men who, for a variety of reasons, choose to live as adolescents. So, despite the silly and often seemingly innocent portrayal of adolescent behavior among men, this is a deadly serious issue in our culture now that needs to be put in our crosshairs as serious Catholic marriages, families, and addressed. Fifteen years ago, I was at a Catholic men's conference in Michigan, and I heard uh, the bishop who was speaking, the guest speaker that night, cite a statistic. He mentioned that he had recently heard a, um, uh, the results of a poll that were taken of Depression-era parents. And... The results were as follows. He said that of those Depression-era parents that were polled, 75% believed that their children and grandchildren were better off than they were. Furthermore, it was stated that 78% of Depression-era parents believed that their children and grandchildren had more, both materially and in the form or by the way of opportunity, than they themselves did. When asked if their children and grandchildren were happier than they were, these Depression-era parents responded, only 7% of the Depression-era parents responded that yes, they were, 7%. Despite having more in the form of material wealth and goods, possessions, opportunities, despite being better off in a whole host of ways, only 7% of their children and grandchildren did they believe to be happier than they were. So this misguided movement which swirls about us and mistakenly equivocates being happy with getting whatever you want, whenever you want, satisfying your desire and pleasure, actually is very near the root of our unhappiness. Because fundamentally, we're made as a gift. We're made as a gift to be emptied, to be poured out for others in the pursuit of the other. A few years ago at a clinical conference in Billings, Montana, not far from Wyoming, In fact, we were about 12 miles south of the Montana border, so it wasn't all. I'm not in any way offended. But at this clinical conference, I heard uh, the following statistic, that 96% of all long-term mental health issues, clinical issues, are relational in nature. And I had to sit with that for a little while throughout the conference and turn this over my head, but it makes sense that 96% of chronic mental illness is relational in nature. Why? Because we are fundamentally made in the image and likeness of a God who is himself relational. That's that's the fingerprints of God on our own nature. We are relational individuals, relational beings. So selfishness and attitude and behavior, so characteristic of, of uh, of what we're seeing in adults who have refused to grow up, this is in fact a relational problem. And it's going to translate into mental issues, mental health issues for the person, the, the, the adult who is acting in an adolescent way. It's going to translate into um, clinical issues for their spouses and for their children, as I hope to do a good job of pointing out before our time is up tonight. See, we were made for excellence, for greatness. This is one of the fundamental characteristics of our God-given nature. We're made in his nature, in his image, and he himself is perfect. We're made and called to himself, and... Nothing short of greatness will be before God for all eternity. This is our calling, the the driving force of our life. It's in our nature. But excellence, greatness, like mediocrity, it's all-consuming. Excuse me. And we're moving in one of these two directions at all times. So as relational beings, we're made in the image and nature of a relational God as a gift to give and to receive. This is characteristic, one of the fundamental characteristics of love which is, in fact, our purpose, our vocation, and our ultimate end. So when that's askew, everything else is off in our life. Like, and in, in pardon the, the simplistic analogy, but like a star shining in the night, giving light. Well, stars also can turn on themselves and implode and become a black hole, right? Well, we too can be like that. Now, we're not giving starlight or lamplight, but the actual real light of the world in Christ Jesus. And when we fail to do that and turn instead on ourselves, which in so many areas of our culture we're encouraged to do so, rewarded for doing so, we too can implode. We can implode and become a black hole. Whereby we will be miserable and we will do a bang-up job of making other people around us miserable. This is a glaring consequence of what I call overindulgence. Overindulgence, which I'll address in, uh, in depth later, but I believe this overindulgence to be at or very near the root of the, our ongoing extension of adolescent behavior and attitudes in our culture. The, the issue of, of the extension of adolescence is not new. No, it's, for us, it's important that we recognize that we're many generations into this, this problem. And the behaviors, the attitudes, and the philosophies so typical of extended adolescence have been a long time in the making. And everyone here tonight is either touched by its effects or in some way responsible for its perpetuation. So I'd like to look at at this and and, uh, some of the effects before discussing some of the contributing factors and then briefly at some possible remedies. Adulthood has been defined at times as as beginning when a person takes responsibility for their life. And so we could use that as basically a loose basis or definition for our time together tonight. Adolescence, on the other hand, adolescent is taken from the the Latin root word to grow up. And in developmental psychology, adolescence is a time of exploration and searching and seeking, which is good, it's natural, it's healthy in the biological stage of adolescence. It's a time of solidifying one's identity. It should be pointed out that as a married adult, as a father, husband, that's not the time to be, strictly speaking, it's not the time that we should be exploring and seeking and searching and trying to solidify our identity. I've witnessed far, far too many easily identifiable instances of misplaced adolescent behavior among men. Men who are expected to be adults. Married men with children, families. Men leaving their wives for for other women. Men abandoning their families for something different. Men addicted to pornography. Look no further than the record number of divorce. The alarming rise of pornography in our culture. And the incessant epidemic of fatherlessness in our culture. I'd say that this is a pretty clear indication of, of a genuine lack of responsibility and a sincere identity crisis that has tragic and very profound generational consequences that need to be admitted and addressed. Very important. But what's more, in my opinion, is, are the far too numerous instances in which fathers and husbands abdicate, abdicate, their God-given place in their families as they flee the responsibilities and challenges of married life and run headlong into adolescence. This, too, is devastating. A good priest friend of mine calls this the flight into adolescence. This is happening all over the place, and and it's something that must be, again, identified and addressed. In my clinical experience, and uh, at the risk of sounding um, obnoxious or dramatic here, I mean this very literally. In my clinical experience, every single time. Every single time that a parent, and in this instance a father, but both parents are on the hook here, every single time that a parent abdicates their God-given parental role or place within the family, bad stuff happens. Every single time without fail. And when we look at the church as a family, the same can be said in our church. When a priest or a bishop abdicates their role as a teacher as a father, as a, provi- as a protector, as a healer, as a defender, as a shepherd, when they abdicate that role, bad stuff happens. And conversely, as I mentioned, the same is true in our family, in our homes. I should add from a marriage family counseling perspective that this God-ordained hierarchical role in our family, it's hard to reclaim that once a father or a husband has, has abdicated it. Women, out of necessity, quite often, they, they take that spot over if the child... Themselves hasn't already, which is a, it's, its own bag of concerns and issues. Well, what happens? The provider-protector role is taken up by the wife or the mother, who is not naturally endowed to live in that role. But mothers, wives, fill that void by taking up that role in the home when there's an abdication on the part of the father, the husband. Over time, these mothers and wives become understandably reluctant to concede that position, that role, given the investment that they've made because of this. Not to mention the cultural influence of what I call functionalism, which is a dastardly little ism that is afloat in our culture and causes all sorts of problems. It's, in its basic form, simply says that, well, if you can do it, I can do it. This is behind, in my opinion, the driving force when, we, we talk about, when, when some talk about women's ordination. I watch what a priest does, I see what he does, and look around and say, well, I can do that. Anybody can do that. No, you can't. It's not simply about the function of the priest, nor is it simply the function of a dad or the function of a mother. It's more than that, and I'll leave that aside for maybe the fall. We'll see. (laughs) But let's face it, because women have had to do this for so long and so often, and many, by the way, have done a stand-up job considering the situation, The mantra then becomes, well, who needs fathers and husbands or men anyway? If the women are doing this on their own, who needs you, Dad? Well, in turn, this is going to perpetuate and has perpetuated the endless array of assaults upon masculinity in general, men in particular, fathers, husbands. And in turn, what do we get? We become, as fathers, husbands, as men, we become the butt of jokes that are culturally... Uh, uh, acceptable. We're viewed now as, as childish burdens to be endured, right? So therefore, it's okay to mock and ridicule and even scorn the man, masculinity, fathers, husbands. And clearly, this puts a strain on the marriage, but what do you think that means for a child in that environment? The son, what does that mean for the son in an environment like that? It's not okay. Bad stuff happens. Who in their right minds wants... Consider that. Consider this scenario. Who in their right mind wants to be a man, a father, or a husband, if that's the environment that they're, they're walking into? And so a husband, the wife, and the children in that family, they all get sick. When I was a kid, my mother died when I was young. I was seven years old my mother died. I looked at my father. He was my hero, and he is more today my hero as a grown man with seven small children than he was when I was a small child in his home. He was my hero. Come home, he'd work hard. He didn't have time for distractions and entertainment. He was busy on raising seven children, small children. He worked his tail off, did an admirable job. I looked at him and said, this is the guy that I want to be. And most of the the, the boys that I grew up with looked at their fathers and said the same thing. That's who they wanted to be. being th- this transition of, and I'll get into this a little bit later, but being a man in general, or being a father and husband, you're, you're, getting, you're, you're getting led to the cross. That's what it means. That's what this means. Uh, Pope Benedict, while he was still Cardinal Ratzinger, and I forget where he wrote this, but he said something that struck me as a seminarian, that conversion... Is a death event. Conversion is a death event. And I think of this in, in the transition into manhood and the transition into fatherhood and marriage. It's a, You're going to die. That's what's happening. You will pour your life out for others, your wife and your children. That's what you're called to do as a father and as a husband, as a man in the culture. That's the call. That's the fact of the matter, the reality. And then when we have these breakdowns in the family, the abdication of these family roles, it perpetuates a generational problem that's compounded by a culture who's taking advantage of the sickness within these homes and in these families. And this is why we get these silly mantras, as I mentioned a moment ago, whereby we're the butt of jokes and people can mock us and ridicule us. And again, the result of that is we don't have boys who aspire to be like their dads. They don't know their dads. There's no example there for them. And then we wonder why this is happening, especially when we have multiple homes and a fleet of cars and a fat bank account. Well, we have it all, what's, what's happening? We're not tending to our role, in irreplaceable role, in that home as a father or as a husband. That's what's happening. So if at the onset then a man recognizes his vital and irreplaceable role in the family, the odds of this type of scenario happening dramatically, exponentially decrease maybe become extinct altogether. But when that doesn't happen, clearly we're setting ourselves and our children up for, um, at the very least, a difficult situation. So where where does this come from? I have often counseled parents saying that in many instances, and I say this very literally literally true, and it's been borne out in experience. In many instances, it's the unmet needs of a parent or parents that serve as the undoing for their children. To repeat, in many instances, it is the unmet needs of the parent or parents that serve as the undoing for their children. Considering the system breakdown that I mentioned a moment ago, when a father abdicates his position in the family, it quite often means that fundamental and essential questions inherent in the adolescent life of a boy or girl, very crucial questions at that stage in their life, they go unanswered. For the boy, those questions are, do I have what it takes? Am I capable? Can I do this? These are critical questions for a boy to be worked out during adolescence. And for a girl, am I lovable? Am I beautiful? These are important questions that need to be addressed and answered, worked out, worked through, in adolescence. Both the boy and the girl rely then upon the aid, the guidance, the wisdom, the help, and the critical input of of their fathers to answer that question. When this doesn't happen, we have adolescents whose development has been arrested, though biologically they continue to age, and we have problems in our culture with the way that they behave. The tragically high number of fatherless homes is, in my opinion, directly proportional to the skyrocketing rates of clinical issues from anxiety to depression to ADD. The problems of adult men behaving like adolescents is huge. It's a huge problem with significant ramifications. When a boy lives in an environment like that, and far too many are living in environments like that in one form or another, they don't magically become men. Unfortunately, our culture has far too few rites of passage. It's one of the reasons that I love the game of football. It's one of the reasons I've chosen to go back into this game to coach. Because there are very few, again, if any, rites of passages for young boys who at some point need to transition to manhood. You can't put an M16 in their, in, in their hand because they're 18 and say, okay, defend the country. For the last 16, 17 years of their life, they've been behind, you know, in an air-conditioned room in the basement playing video games. They're not ready to do that. How do we expect that boy to transition and, and love his wife with his, till his dying breath to pour himself out for his children and his family, to love his God with everything he's got in him? That, that doesn't just happen because it, someone turns 18 or 21 or because he can drink a beer or graduate from college or, or, or vote. This is a problem. It's a big problem. And the problem... In one generation then, unresolved, spills over to the next generation. And thus, we have a generational issue on our hands. A multi-generational issue, which, from our vantage point now, does not seem to be getting better. If we're honest about it, it does not seem to be getting better. So, to this point, we've touched upon the consequences of a father, husband, an adult, who should be acting like an adult, but has chosen for a variety of reasons not to. We focused on that and the consequences of of um, such attitudes, philosophies, and behaviors, and the damage caused to him, his wife, children, and family. but how does this happen? How does he get to that? How does it get to that point? And so I, I want now to look at at how these little monsters become big monsters, and I like to focus now upon how parents actually play a role, a key and central role in the formation, and I I, I don't want to misuse the term development, of these little monsters becoming big monsters and these uh, creating significant issues in our culture. So, as uh, Tim mentioned at the onset, I'm a teacher, and I'm a coach, and I'm a licensed professional counselor. It's it's been my clinical experience, upon finishing my graduate degree, when I started uh, for a couple years in a psychiatric hospital serving, working with extremely, extremely dysfunctional families, what was left of them. Broken, poor, with in every instance, without fail, every single instance, there was some form or other of abuse in these homes. Of the hundreds of families that we were to work with, not one, literally, not one kid that I worked with in a a psychiatric hospital for two years, not one instance in which their biological mother or father were intact in the home. Not one. And these children suffered tremendous abuse. To hear it takes your breath away. To sit in front of that there, you don't have an answer, you can't speak to the, 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 the type of abuse that many of these kids had endured, okay? The, the, the consequence of that oftentimes was a deep-seated rage, usually in the form or question of, why didn't they protect me, right? Why did this happen, okay? And I thought those questions were warranted in many instances, I transitioned from that psychiatric hospital and, and took over as a clinical director at a licensed residential treatment facility. And we worked with adolescents, we worked with their, their families and their marriages. I am of the opinion that it, this particular facility is the best of its kind in doing what it does. And primarily because they are rooted firmly in the heart of the church and their understanding of the human person as they work with kids in marriages and families. And they do a ter- terrific job. Um, in that way. But interestingly enough, what I found, on the one hand was the significant abuse with terrible backgrounds, no biological parents in the home, or biological parents were not in the home. Okay. Interestingly, working in this residential environment, we had significant instances of abuse, and sometimes parents weren't in the home. Oftentimes, both biological mom and dad were in the home. But at least 50% of the cases that we worked with over the course of three years we found something different with biological mom and dad in the home, something that we came to call neglect, not outright abuse that we saw in this psychiatric hospital, but we called neglect. These are families in homes, that, the kids that came from, from homes that were in gated communities where parents made six and seven figures, worked with, I worked with international models, worked with professional hockey and basketball and football, sent from all over the world, internationally, sent to our treatment facility. Had everything that the culture says you need to be happy, to get along in this culture and and make it. And what we came to find was that these kids started acting in ways and expressing a rage that, we, that I saw in the psychiatric hospital. Where was this coming from? And it's very interesting that on the one hand, there was poverty and brokenness and broken homes, and it manifested in rage. Then working with kids who came from gated communities, who had everything that they could ever want, and it manifested in rage. I could be wrong, but I think the, the, the philosopher Sartre wrote a play uh, on hell, No Exit. If I'm not mistaken, and I could be, there's a scene where they sit at a table and they're eating, and before they could ask for what they needed, they were given given that. In a sense, this is a form of overindulgence which I'm going to refer to in a a moment. But notice, Sartre, the philosopher, is writing a play on hell, and intertwined in that is these aspects and instances of, of overindulgence. Should give us some insight as we move forward. So, this overindulgence, I contest, I stake my life on the fact that this is causing tremendous damage in families, in marriages, and in the lives of children. Tremendous damage. And it needs to be dealt with. This is uh, behind, in my opinion, maybe not all of it, but a good bit of the epidemic that we're we're addressing here tonight, an an epidemic that we would, I think, rightly term a failure to launch. So, I'd like to look at three distorted uh, and very damaging beliefs of overindulgent parents because, one, overindulgence fosters, among other things, entitlement and selfish behavior, which is so characteristic of what we see in this widespread adolescent behavior across the developmental spectrum, And, and two... Because when we hear things like this, if you're like me, we hear it, we take it in and say, wow, that's interesting, but it's not me. It's somebody I know or somebody else. In fact, we had a, um, one of the requirements of families that would send their children to us. We would give them a book and ask them to read this. We were working. We didn't just work with the, the inpatient. We worked with the inpatient, the marriage, and the entire family, which is the appropriate and effective and accurate way to do counseling in that way. Many parents wouldn't read. And so as we worked and talked, and and many of these kids, I built relationships up with these families for a year and a half, sometimes two years, they wouldn't read because they didn't think that they were overindulgent. Because their limited definition of overindulgence meant that they're just buying things for their children. And that is absolutely a very easily identifiable form of overindulgence and it's very popular in our culture. But it is absolutely not the only form. And I don't even know that that's the most sinister form. So I want to look at a couple of these things, and I think that all of us would do well to take this in and consider Turn over tonight when we leave, uh, reflect upon our interactions with our children. Let me begin then with a quote from Dr. Jim Fogarty. He's a man from whom I learned a great deal about um, through study and considering his positions on a variety of issues as it relates to counseling. Um, during my time as a clinical counselor in Wyoming. Furthermore, I draw a good bit of the content of this next section from, from Dr. Fogarty, whom I credit. Um, but the passion and the color that I hopefully will add is because this has been borne out in experience as accurate. So he says, quote, All children need three sets of skills before they can become adults. They need to know when to be dependent so that they can heal from hurts. They need to, they need to know how to be kind so that they can have quality relationships. And they need the stamina of self-reliance so that they can stand on their own two feet. Overindulged children learn to be overdependent and nothing else." End quote. So most healthy parents mourn, in, in, in their own unique way, mourn the passage of developmental stages in the lives of their children. My wife and I, we talk, now that they're seven, uh, kids at home, which is still unbelievable. It's a great blessing. Um, th- there are seven little guys and, and, and girls, and when they would move from crawling to walking, or just prior to that, at times, my wife would say, just can't wait till they can walk. And, and I almost inevitably and in every situation say, well, let's, they're going to walk. We, we're, they're getting there, but they're never going to crawl again. So let's just enjoy when they're crawling because it just happens fast, right? Um... And then, you know, she'll remind me that, well, you spend, you know, all the time that I'm spending with them and chasing them all over the house and (laughs) locking them. All right, you're right. I can see the point. So, uh, but there is this passage of, obviously, with our kids, they move along and they grow up fast. Those of us here that are parents, we recognize. It happens very fast. And in our own way, we mourn the passage of moving from one stage to the next. But for overindulgent parents, no. They suppress that feeling of, of, of mourning instead they keep their children overdependent and thus their children cling to them throughout life so let's look at then the distorted beliefs of overindulgent parents these are the beliefs which many parents hold or have because they mistakenly believe that it's going to strengthen somehow the bond the relationship that they have with their children i'm here to tell you that in every situation it fosters nothing but deep Seated rage and cultivates an entitled, self centered person. First is this belief of constant happiness. Constant happiness. The flag should be waving behind me. It's such an American misnomer. Constant happiness. The self esteem of children is improved if they are constantly happy. The self esteem of children is improved if they are constantly happy. Well, parents are misguided into believing that being a good parent equals the number of happy experiences that they can provide for their children. If I provide a lot of happy experiences, I'm a good parent. Very base, primitive, silly, misguided, and harmful in in its essence, right? So our children need parenting. Our children need parenting. Happiness will manifest itself in their life. Promise. Our children need to be parented. They need to be they grow up, they need to be raised and trained throughout, right? So, and this happens at random, unplanned, and often inconvenient times. These are unscheduled events. And this, I mentioned this actually in a series of articles I wrote for Steve Wood at the Family Life Center in town, a great resource for us, titled Parenting with Purpose. And trying, in one of those articles, try to blow up this misguided notion of of some sort of separation and distinction between quality time and quantity time. That's really a rationalization that really busy people who put their kids second, families second or third, to their work or other worldly pursuits. That's how we have, in America, decided to rationalize it away. Quality, well, at least I get to spend quality time. Guess what? A three-year-old kid needs you there. That's what they need. Life asserts itself in your marriage, in your home, in your family, and with your children. And when we're not there, we miss the opportunities to help our children develop and seize the moment, right? Challenges, failures, consequences, whatever it may be, right? It's all blessing. It's all good. It's all blessing. Because these kids need to learn. They need to be trained. And they they need the mother or father in their life, supervising, raising them up, pointing out, and training them. This is, this is not the situation. Our kids can't be, like, you know, typed into our Blackberries and, and, and with events and checked off, you know, on the Franklin planner. that, okay, well, we handle this. This stuff happens, and oftentimes it happens at inconvenient times. Again, when we say yes at the altar, we go to the cross, hand-in-hand hand with our spouse. But luckily, Our Lady and Our Lord are there, so we're in good company. This desire for constant happiness, if we're honest, who in here, who do we know that doesn't have this desire? I mean, come on. That, this isn't me sitting up here saying, this is, a, this is silly. You're an alien if you have this. We all have this desire to be constantly happy. Who would not want to be constantly happy, right? So let's admit that. But we also need to recognize it needs to be tempered. That's part of growing up. So we need the ability, and as adults, we hopefully at this point have been able to... Uh, figure that out to to, to delay gratification. Little kids have an inability to delay gratification. Fact of the matter. Right? This is why psychology gets behind the architecture of uh, grocery stores, for example. And they put the candy rack right at the checkout aisle. Because they know kids don't have the ability to delay gratification. So as mom or dad are right there with the kid and they're waiting for the bill to be tallied up, that little kid's staring at a Snickers. I want. I want. I want. Well, of course they do. You kind of do, too, maybe. I don't know. But you can say, well, no, because dinner's around the corner and I can wait. But that two-year-old can't wait, so they're going to start to cry or throw a temper tantrum, etc., and as long as you can put up with that, everything's going to be grand. But we need to recognize that that's normal. Age developmental issue, normal. As an adolescent, there's times where it's normal, times where it starts to border on abnormal and, all the time, annoying. But But you see it happen less constantly. They're learning. They're being trained. And as adults, hopefully we've mastered, or at least accepted, the reality that we need to be able to delay gratification. Very important skill. Very important skill. And ironically, they're finding that one of the common traits among those who suffer from depression is an inability to delay gratification. The irony in this is that we live in a culture that is... Proficient has their PhD in immediately meeting and serving your every wish and need, and then trying to communicate to you that this is the the path to fulfillment and happiness. And the stats don't bear that out. There was a statistic that came out uh, about three years ago or so, I think, that said uh, one one in 10 Americans, 40 million Americans are currently, this is three years ago, currently on uh, prescription medicine for depression. 40 million Americans. Now, that's mind-blowing to begin with, but then also factor in, these are, people, these are only the people that have gone to get help, of 40 million Americans. And these, this is only on, for depression medicine. Something is not adding up here, folks. And we have to be honest about that, stand in front of it, and make different decisions about our lives. This idea of uh, this notion of constant happiness, this misguided, overindulgent parenting belief, also included in this is that, that we don't want our, ch- our children to experience uncomfortable emotions. And again, as parents, let's be honest. It, when they hurt, we hurt. That's part of the suffering of being a parent. When our kids hurt, we hurt. But what I, the way that I see this translated, as, as a coach, we do purposely put the kids in our care in uncomfortable positions. Purp- we purposely do that because we're trying to train them. Well, what ends up happening is that if, if I don't like the way that, I, that this external stimuli is, I, I quit. I quit, and unfortunately, It's usually not the kids that I'm I'm having an issue keeping within our football program. It's usually trying to convince parents how important it is that when they say they're in, they're in. I tell our kids all the time, your greatest ability, care how high you can jump, how fast you can run, you can catch, tackle, hit, do any of those things, great. Take a number, because we're all on the football field. right? Your greatest ability is your dependability. I tell this to the parents, parent means every single year for the last six years. And without fail, while we have, and they have a schedule in their hands, they're still going to schedule their events while we have practice. They're still going to allow the kids to go out and, I just had a kid two days ago, coach, I'm not going to be at practice. Well, why not? Well, I have, have homework. They have homework at Harvard. They have homework at, at the Naval Academy. They play football at both those places too. When you said yes to come out, did you think school was going to stop? What, what would you like me to do? Because you have homework, because you have a project. I recognize You're here for an education. Part of that education, and what I try to convince parents, the big, in my opinion, the big part of education are these little nuanced intangibles. Like, when you say you're committed, you stay committed. If you have homework, you figure it out. You make it work. You know why? Because that's how life is. And if you're dependable now, you're gonna learn the habit and the trait of being dependable when you don't want to be dependable. Hmm? Because pretty soon a wife and children are going to count on you. And you better have learned to be dependable. So that when you say you're going to be somewhere, you're there. When you say you're going to do something, you do it. And this is where, we talked about the, 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 the transition from boyhood to manhood, and the lack of, of, um, of uh, rites of passage, thank you. The lack of rites of passage. This, this is the way that we can make up for it, is, t- is Take these little nuggets of opportunity and help these kids understand. This matters. Yeah, I'm, contrary to what people may think, I'm not in love with a game of football. I could, honest to God, I could take it or leave it, but I recognize this is an an unbelievable, incredible opportunity to form the lives of young boys so that they can become men that the world desperately needs. But to do that, we need to be able to toss this idea of constant happiness right out the window because it doesn't work, especially on a football field. In the end, overindulged children learn to expect constant attention and entitlement. They learn to expect constant attention and entitlement. It does not create happy children. The second misguided notion or belief of overindulgent parents is this idea of whatever you want. Whatever you want. I'm sure nobody here has heard that. Um, But parents mistakenly believe that unconditional love means that their children should get whatever they want. They should do whatever they want. Right? We're loving wonderful parents. We're going to provide, and they get to do whatever they want. This is really, you know, one of the things that this is about is, is difficulty saying no. And, okay, some people have that problem, other people don't. Um, but what we need to understand that if you have difficulty saying no, this might help you learn to say no, because what happens is it cultivates low expectations in your children. Let me say just a couple things about this. When I was a kid, I grew up, we didn't, as I mentioned, my mother died when I was young. My dad worked, came home, did everything he needed to do, and when it was done, he was out. That was it. Worked, came home, served, slept. Hit repeat in the morning. Do the same thing. That's the environment I grew up in. So we didn't have a whole lot. And as kids, and I remember having this discussion with my older sister later when I was living in Michigan and coaching. She would say, oh, gosh, all these things. You know, she was having a family, and we don't have this, and we don't have this. I just don't know what to do, et cetera. I said, wait, time out. This is why when we were kids and we'd raise a stink about we don't have this and wish we had this. And, and I mean, I'm talking about like going to neighbor's house so we can eat, okay? That type of not having stuff. So I have a brother who still will not eat ramen noodles because he ate like that every meal for about 10 years. That's where we were, okay? But we made it. Thanks be to God, and thanks to my father. But it didn't make sense then, but now as an adult, when, you, when, when I have nothing, it's very easy to say, no, no, I get it now. I understand. All of those things are superfluous. And so there's plenty of times, believe me, that my wife and I would like more of things that we don't currently have. We'd like to be able to take a vacation here, or do this, or drive this type of car, fix up the house here. Can't do it. Not, not an option. Now, that's a burden, but here's where it's a blessing. When kids come to you and say, I would like to do this, or I want this, or I see my friend, he's got this, these shoes and this trinket, and no. Even if I wanted to, I mean, I can't. No, can't do it. So get used to saying no. Get used to saying no. And as I said, it, it, it cultivates low expectations. As a teacher, switch hats here for a minute, as a teacher, I see this way too often. When they hear nothing but yes, I want, I want, I want, yes, yes, yes. One of the manifestations and the problem, the consequence of this, is a kid sits in the classroom, sits back, I'm here, I want an A. Oh, great, Johnny, take a number, buddy, because it doesn't work in here. Whoa, what do you think that does to a kid who has never heard no? It does a lot of things to a kid who's never heard no, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in a minute, but We're setting our kids up for failure. Yes, 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 yes. And then when they're in a situation where they hear no, again, bad stuff happens to them and to the situation. Often these difficulties um, with, with the whatever you want idea, there's difficulties on the part of parents distinguishing between the wants and the needs of their children. I want, I want, I want. And then it's, yes, 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 you get, you get, you get. But in fact, if it's going to help any parent in here who might struggle in this way, recognize that when you give, 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 give to every want, 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 you're training your children to overburden you. That's what happens. So when your kids want, 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 and it's, it's always give, 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 yes, 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 you will be run to the ground. You will be run into the ground. And... Obviously, none of us want to be there, so we need to address that. The, the other thing that I, I, I see in, in, in uh, parents, too, is this idea of, am I going to be my, my child's friend, or am I going to be my, my child's parent? When I was a kid, I lived uh, in, in high school for a few years, I lived with my aunt. And I will never forget the day she helped to change the way I think about many things in life. She looked me right in the eye and said, Joe, I don't care if you like me or not. It's not my job to be your friend. You will respect me and live by the rules in this home. OK, you got it. That's the truth. There's, I can't wiggle around that. What that did immediately doused uh, the, the flames of, that were burning inside of me th- uh, about how am I going to get around? What, what ways am I going to figure out? What games am I going to play? How can I manipulate my aunt and my uncle to get what I want? I don't like you. Boo hoo. I need a swift kick in the rear and say, I don't care if you like me or not. That's not why I'm here. It's not the way this thing works, kiddo. And guess what? I got it. Thanks be to God. And things change for me, for the better. When, this, when we become, and this is something for anybody that here or that we know struggles with this friend-parent uh, issue, recognize that when we make the mistaken, the, the, the foolish decision to be friends with our kids, when you do that, you give up the influence you have over your child as their parent. It's a big pr- you become a peer, and your level of respect has just gone out the window. So there's a give and get, and what you get is not really um, worth giving. So in response, the children, they don't love you know, to this whatever-you-want mentality. They don't end up loving you anymore. They just demand more. We used to call this, in Wyoming, we called it feeding the beast. I want, I want, I want. It's like, you know, Gollum in a sense. They Just single-minded in their, their commitment to just hoard happiness and items and things, you know. And now it, it, it's increased, in my opinion, way out of control with all sorts of gadgets and trinkets and things that are being pushed to them from a variety of, uh, in a variety of ways. But in essence, they become more entitled. In the end, overindul- over-indulged children never, never learn to be self-reliant. Instead, they refine their skills to get what they want, from other people without ever having to earn it. The third and the final misguided notion or uh, distorted belief of over parents I want to point out is called shielding from consequences. Shielding from consequences. Parents shield their children from consequences, the consequences of their actions and the complications of life. This is a big problem. A big pro- All of, I think, the, the, each of these instances are, but when, when teaching a, this is the image I have in my head, you know, when teaching a child to ride a bike, at some point, you need to take your hand off the back of the seat, right? By that point, we should have coached our kids up well enough to know what the rules are, what the boundaries are, how to operate the bike successfully, navigate terrain, etc. Hand off the bike, and there you go. Well, as you, you know, as well as I do, there's bike, you know, they fall off their bike. There's bike crashes and accidents all the time with kids, right? So, although now it shouldn't matter, they're, they're like in body armor. So, um, but, nevertheless, what happens is when you take your hand off the back of the seat and the kid goes, we want to shield them from consequences. But, really, when your kid's riding down the sidewalk, if they decide to break the rules, if they decide to go out of the boundaries, if they decide to be disobedient to what their parents have shared with them, have, have asked of them, bad stuff happens. Bad stuff happens. Now, again, citing the, the misguided belief we said a moment ago, none of us, we hurt when they hurt, right? So when they fall off from jerking the wheel like we told them a minute ago not to do, and they fall in, right on their face and skin their, their, their head, their nose, it hurts us too, Right? But the truth of the situation, the truth of this matter, and the very powerful par- par- uh, parenting um, element to this is that, first, the child learns that if they don't like that bad emotion, wow, this hurt, I'm crying, I don't like this, they learn to attach a right reasoning to that. I don't like the way that this felt. Hmm, I, I'm making a commitment, or I'm thinking, oh, I shouldn't do that again. That's an important skill that has to happen in the life of a young kid, and definitely within adolescence. That's first. Second, when you get to coach up your kid and say, here are the rules, here are the boundaries, here's the expectations, the standards, et cetera, and they deviate from that, and bad stuff happens, right? You will have had the ability to have predicted the behavior, which you say, look, if you turn the wheel like this, you're going to fall off your bike and hurt yourself. Whatever, Dad. They do it. It happens. They might not say it in that moment, but over time, it's going to elevate and strengthen and solidify your stature as a parent. Somebody who, they know what they're doing. They might not, especially in adolescence, they might not tell you that, but they're gradually starting to come to understand, this cat knows what he's talking about. I better pay attention. The other thing, and I tell this to my kids all the time, it's a mantra in my home. I tell it to the football, uh, the guys that I work in the football field. In every case, when you're disobedient, bad stuff happens. So I tell the, my kids. They'll come down. Uh, I, I just gave a talk a couple months ago, and I use this example. You know, bouncing on the bed, I'll hear a crash. And, oh, they come down the stairs. Oh, my head hurts. Well, what happened? I was bouncing on the bed, and it fell off. You're not supposed to do that, are you? No. What happens when you're disobedient? Bad stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yep, bad stuff. Are you okay? Yeah. All right. Time out. Sit on the steps. So I'll tell my kids all the time. What happened? They'll tell you right now if they were here. What happens when you're disobedient? Bad stuff. We, we were in a playoff game two years ago. And, um, you know, tell, say things a, a million times over uh, to our kids, to the kids that we teach our coach. So I'm watching this play. We're on defense. I'm watching this happen. And I see a kid do the exact opposite of what he's coached to do. In fact, we hold this up as an example say, Guys, when you do something, don't do this. And sure enough, he did it. When he did it, I saw him get hurt. I saw the whole thing happen. So the play ensues. I'm already walking out to like the near side numbers. I already know what's happening. Play ends on the headset. Oh, so and so's down. What happened? Whatever. I'm like, Listen, relax. I got it. The doctor had run over there. They had a trainer. They're all around and going, Oh, he's riding around in pain. Oh, I say, Excuse me. I said, Caleb. What happens when you're disobedient? Bad stuff! Yeah, get up, let's go. Right? Every time. But the, tr- the, the deeper truth to this is that this is the story of salvation history, right? This is our story. When, when we're disobedient, bad stuff happens. And, and it's important that we experience the consequences of those bad things, of our foolish decisions. I, had a, I worked with a, woman who, a good woman. She practiced what's called solution-focused therapy. And so I would watch her patiently sit and work with these people, and they'd say things, and she'd say, well, how's that working for you? That was her, that, I said, this is the trick, I can counsel, I can do that. I can do that. She'd sit there, and they'd wail away, and her only response, she'd patiently listen, is, how's that working for you? Holy smoke. But the point is clear. If you don't like that, then make the decision to stop doing that, right? So, um, another kind of sinister subpoint of this shielding from consequences is, is this mode of thinking that I can do whatever I want and my parents are going to rescue me from the consequences. There was an article in the Greenville News, uh, well, since I've been here, so the three, last four five years, front page about overindulgence and how it's impacting college campuses right now. Where parents are calling professors about grades of their kids. There's, there are professors in college that are retiring because they're tired of dealing with this. Significant consequences, right? So in the end, overindulged children don't learn the self-management skills that they need to manage their life, which is an important um, missing piece of the puzzle as they become adults. So in reality, we see these common traits among overindulged children who in turn become overindulged and self-centered, entitled adults whose development has been arrested, really. And they have at least these three characteristics, dependency, dependency, lack of age-appropriate skills, and an inflated self-image. And I think we see that today. There's many more characteristics, but just those um, to name a few. But sadly, these children become resentful. Go back to the the scenario I I mentioned, working in this residential facility in Wyoming. People that came from gated communities, driving cars that were three times my salary when they turned 16. These kids hated their parents. I had a girl sit in front of me. She was a 17-year-old kid. She, they had more money than anybody in my family tree for the last, you know, go back eight, ten generations could possibly spend. She sat in front of me, 17 years old, looked me dead in the eye and said what occupies her thinking is setting her family on fire and watching them burn. That's a, that's a special kind of Rage. In a kid who the culture would hold up and say, they have everything. Look how beautiful. The parents, the home, the the job, all of the, the gadgets. This is what was in her heart. Her parents were giving her all sorts of things that she didn't need or want. And they were convincing themselves that that was good parenting. Meanwhile, they were losing the soul of their child. The one gift that mattered in their life. They were losing it. And these kids, they get resentful. And part of what compounds that is they don't have the skills then to change, to change the situation because they've been overindulged and haven't learned the skills. So they're stuck. They become angry adults. So as parents, we all want what's best for our children. But today, that's come to mean a lot of things that ultimately and in the end really have nothing to do with, with what's best for our, our children. I, I, I bullet pointed a couple things and this is I don't know whether this is a diatribe or not, but I'm going to just give this to you. okay? As soon as Tim asked me to do this, I sat down and, and put these bullet points just to get out of my head. And so I give this to you as it relates to, to, to the parenting, to um, how these... Kids are being shaped and formed to become adults that are really causing significant issues in our culture. Not consequencing behavior, not having and holding to expectations and boundaries. Guilt purchases, they're not what's best for our kids who grow up instead locked in a state of perpetual adolescence. Not good. Writing off the wrongs, the misgivings or failures of our children in the form of, it's the teacher's fault, she just doesn't like you, the coach is mean, they don't know what they're talking about, really does nothing but model a lack of accountability and expectations. Praising adolescents for what is expected of them, praising them for expected behavior, is not healthy. And it leads ultimately to adults who expect a blue ribbon pinned on their chest simply for showing up at the dinner table. That's one of the issues that make it problematic, but it's problematic also because the basics, the the fundamental expectations of adults worldwide should not be the ceiling for our behavior. This should be the floor. This should be the floor, and we should as adults continually strive to push the outer boundaries of our behavior, the outer boundaries of our ability to to, to live for others, to be Christ-centered in our motives and our actions and our desires. Setting the basics is, is lowering the bar of expectations. And when we do that, bad stuff happens. In schools, when teachers and administrators do these things, bad stuff happens. There's rumblings in the hallway, and, and teachers and, and, and administrators, they want to meet the needs, which really oftentimes are wants, of the kids in the hall, and it leaves, it leaves people exhausted, frustrated, and Sometimes the teachers are administrators who are assessing things on whether or not the rules or the expectations are well-received, are, are, are we liked. That's a bad policy. That's a bad policy, and things go wrong quickly when that happens. When parents fail to consequence bad behavior, when parents overlook the boundaries and expectations that they or other people may have set and instead choose to reward kids despite their lack of earning it, it's lowering the standard of excellence for those kids. It lowers the bar. It lowers it to a level that allows the kid to simply just step right over it. And as I said, this creates not just an anger but a deep-seated rage as adults, because these people find out that they're not trained. They don't have the skills to do what life requires or expects of them at a later date. Filling our minds, kids, filling our kids' minds. Excuse me, with, with nonsense about them being perfect, awesome, the most beautiful, the best, the smartest, the greatest. And then, to take it a step further, petitioning or sometimes strong-arming communities or churches or schools or teams to honor that in the form of awards or recognitions, it's detrimental. It's detrimental to their development beyond adolescence. It is not healthy, and it needs to stop. It fosters instead a narcissism that's incompatible with our God-given nature as relational human beings. That's what happens. it's inevitably going to set up a confrontation with reality. I'm the most beautiful. I'm the best, the smartest. Well, guess what, kiddo? Very few ever are. And if they learn that at home when they get cut from a team and they go home and they realize, no, it's not the coach's fault. It's not the team's fault. Work hard. If you want to do it, work harder. Try out again next year. You just weren't good enough, kiddo. But you know what that also does for a parent or for a kid? Helps them understand. my, my, Purpose, my place on this planet has, is not contingent upon what I do in, in, in as much as it relates to what I have or what I own or my bank account or my abilities. Am I going to profess Christ with, with my lips, with my, my, in, in my heart, my actions? That's the mark and measure of our life. When Christ comes, will he find faith on earth? Not were you, did you make the basketball team. Seriously. We know this, but we don't do those things, and it's harming our church. It's breaking down families and marriages. It's not okay. This is not okay. Couple all of this youth-centered parenting and cultural fostering of such silliness with the reality that, and this this is the reality, that this current generation is the first in the history of civilization that is actually passing up to parents, vital knowledge, in, mostly in the form of technology. And you have an interesting and very potential uh, and potentially very harmful shift in the nature of the family and the dynamics in the family structure. I'm fascinated by this. If I was ever to go back to school, this would be, I think, my doctorate. This and how technology is potentially transforming human nature. And I mean that seriously. Um, and it's, it, it's, uh, it, it's a worthwhile consideration. So, Solutions, briefly, certainly not exhaustive, but some considerations. I think it's important for us to recognize that this is a problem. This is a problem. I don't think that you'd be here if you didn't believe somewhere that it is a problem. And for those of us that are parents, those of us that have children, this is our problem. And and we would do well to examine ourselves and seek to identify the areas of our life, men, where, where we flee into adolescence. And what are the effects of that on our marriage, on our wives, our children? I'm guilty of that. I do, I, I'm here giving this presentation. I do that. And I have to pinpoint that and seek to correct that. Ask for God's help to change that. And I encourage all of us to be able to take a look at ourselves in that way and, and how we interact with our children. Are we communicating? Are we communicating? Not via text or instant message or, 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 or otherwise, but are we eyeball to eyeball communicating with our children? Um, it's very important, and as I mentioned, we need to be supervising them and training them, and that requires that we're with them. Um, additionally, we need to be truthful to our kids. Now clearly this is you know, uh, defer to wisdom in, in being truthful in an age-appropriate way, but we need to be truthful to our children. And I mean, maybe most particularly in the areas of assessment going back to a moment ago, the most beautiful, the smartest, the best. You know our kids need to know that very rarely, if ever, are they going to be. The best at something, or the greatest, or the smartest, and that's okay. That's okay. For me, it's easy because I can tell it to my kids, I'm like, "Well, your dad never was, so we're okay." You know, uh, and so if I can, you know, do all right, you can too. Um, the other thing I, I'd say is um, is work to use technology as a as a tool, not a toy, that instead inhibits our character development and um, and hampers our our ability to to, to grow up. A couple of years ago, I was listening to a, uh, a seminar series. It, it, they're called the Mars Hill Audio Journal. It was actually on tape, um, and uh, and um, one of the things that they said was that the video game is the new novel. The video game is the new novel. I think that that's true. I think it says a lot in just a few words, but that's not a compliment either. And I won't even—I'm not even going to get into video. Not even going to necessarily pick on video games or video game players right now. I think it's too easy to do that, but I do think it's warranted, and maybe for the fall. Um, But, but not just video games, but screen time in general. There's many studies that are coming out now about the effect, the negative consequence of screen time, and it's—it's how detrimental it is to our relational the relational aspect of our nature with one another, with our parents and, and uh, with our children. Very important, we need to pay attention to that as parents. Um, among other things, this, thwart, this thwarts and stunts the development of imagination. That's a big deal, a very big deal. So again, I, I, I'll leave that um, as it is for a moment. I, I'm going to end in, in a quote from uh, Scott Peck, um, a best-selling author and um, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, um, he wrote a number of uh, books, but one of the books that, in the book that I'm taking this from is called um, The Road Less Traveled. A good priest friend of mine put me onto it and said, well, you need to look at the first 71 pages because the rest, and he gave me his assessment of the rest. And so I read the first 71 pages, and it's, it's pretty good. Here's one of the things he said. The tendency to avoid problems and the emotional suffering inherent in them is the primary basis for all human mental illness, end quote. The tendency to avoid problems and the emotional suffering inherent in them is the primary basis for all human mental illness. So this failure-to-launch epidemic, which we've been speaking about tonight, if it's not an illness in and of itself, it is arguably the result of and a contributing factor to much mental illness. And therefore, in my opinion, extremely important for us to pay attention to. So that said, I thank you for the opportunity to speak to you. And um and I hope at some point to have the opportunity to do that again. I don't know if you wanna if anybody has questions or